invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 19 for the preaching of the word this morning. Four words, creation, fall, redemption, fulfillment. Those four words are often used to summarize the, the Bible's whole storyline. There was a creation, there's a fall, there's redemption, and there's fulfillment, or sometimes called consummation. So you could study the Bible and explain the Bible to someone in those four words, creation, fall, redemption, fulfillment. The Bible may be studied also in terms of covenants from God's covenant with Adam in the garden, now broken, all the way to the new covenant in Christ's blood, with covenantal teachings along the way showing us things about the nature of God, like Noah's Ark of Salvation, or Abraham's promised blessing to the nations, or Moses' giving of the law, a place that we're plopping right into right now, the preparation for that law giving is Exodus 19, or you could look forward to David's kingly office, the New Testament is restating and framing and pulling from and snapping into view so many episodes from the Old Testament, so many types pointing to Christ and so many shadows showing a silhouette of our Lord Christ. We come to the foot of one of these mountains today quite literally in Exodus 19. The people at Mount Sinai are encamped or camped out at the foot of the mountain. And they're preparing to receive the law with moral and civil and ceremonial aspects given. 3,500 years ago now, we look back at these events and we need to understand as we go back 3,500 years ago that these events are unique, not common. And these events are communal, not individual. So we need to frame that that way, that this is something for congregation and not just for an individual's personal quiet time and this is something to understand also uh, not just simply as transferable to us today but as a unique event in the history of God's revelation through that lens Exodus 19 is an extremely important chapter to teach us about how God intends to relate with his people so if you're an unbeliever this morning and you're separated from God as a sinner, you actually have a path to the approach of a holy God, but you will need to receive grace in order to do so. You, you cannot get to God any other way but through the sheer grace that he has provided, and as the story unfolds, he has provided through his son Jesus Christ, who died in your place and offers you salvation. But you have no path no confidence to approach the holy without salvation in Christ. So I pray that you'd receive that today. I hope you will even right now. Just receive Christ. Receive his bountiful mercy for you. There's no believer here that hasn't walked that path and received Christ. For the believers here today, you're united with God by grace. And you have a command to approach God. Not an opportunity, but a command to even. This holy God, but every time you approach him, you're going to need to approach him through the mediating grace of the Messiah, every single time, praying in Christ's name. 
And so this text will teach us about these things, and in addition to showing us the character of God, which is magnificent, I think today's passage will instruct you as a believer on the privilege of your prayer, as aforementioned. It is really a privilege to pray. It's not just a job, although prayer is work, it's a privilege, it's an opportunity. The veil of the temple has been torn, and you have access, you have this confidence to approach the throne of grace in prayer because of Christ's finished work. So in this, this one-of-a-kind, unique event in Moses' time, 3,500 years ago, we're going to see the divine, the most powerful king ever forming covenant with his vassals or with his servants, with his people. And we're going to see this not just in kingly terms, but in relational terms of kindness because of God's kindness, even in rebuke. And what we'll see today is how God relates with his people some of the kind of inner realities of those relatings. And I think we can follow the text today under three bold headings. Bold heading number one is God's work. So if you want to, if you want to write these things down, if you want to follow along today, really kind of put, put some flesh on these bones of the sermon today. Number one is God's work, and that will be in verses one to six. And then secondly, bold heading number two, you're going to see man's response. I think you can follow that in verses 7 to 15. And then thirdly today, the importance of a mediator. The importance of a mediator. And you can follow that from verse 16 to the end of the chapter at verse 25. So we're now going to read God's word, and then we'll take it on those three parts. Hear God's word from Exodus chapter 19. Now. This is Israel at Mount Sinai. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and also and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. 
no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. When Mo- then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people. Warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto all who hear. So in the first six verses, we see the inner realities of God's covenant relating with his people under the bold heading of just two simple words, God's work, just God's work. And we see God's work in the very setting itself of this chapter, as well as in what God has done for them and in what God plans to do through them. So we see God's work in the setting itself, or, or maybe what we might call the journey. Let your eyes look down at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. It talks about a lunar system, the third new moon, after the people came out of Israel. It says, on that day they encamped in the wilderness of Sinai at the foot of Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb. So the third new moon was about 50 days from Passover to the giving of the law, sort of like the time frame akin to Passover to Pentecost. Some have compared this time frame to the Feast of Weeks. This would mark the beginning of an important year in the life of the Israelites. As I said last week, fully a third of the first five books of the Bible of the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, a full third of it is given to telling what happened in this less than a one-year period in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Some have pointed out that God delivered them out of Egypt only to take them the long way around and to a desolate place from redemption to a desert experience. And that really is kind of a pattern in the Bible, isn't it? To take you from some kind of deliverance into a desert. We see that time and again that God redeems people to then make his people through the trials of life, not going around them. Following deliverance, God has to teach his people obedience, and then later, ultimate blessing follows. But God works through the hard, and that may be instructive for us today to think about how we've received the Lord, and yet our life is not a bed of roses. We've followed the Lord, we've known his deliverance, his hand, and yet difficulty. 
difficulty. And we must look to the pattern of Scripture as our encouragement for the contours of salvation being worked out in every man rather than our own idea of what salvation should look like. To put it differently, when we get into the hard and we think about the pattern of Scripture and we think about even Christ himself who went from baptism into the desert, we should think about our own lives and perhaps see our sufferings as part of how God is making us who we will be. Having overcome some external threats already, God now takes aim at a threat that comes from within, internal threats in the people. Remember the Amalekites had attacked God's people. and They'd had to learn warfare very early using the weapons they'd pillaged from the Egyptians when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. But now they have problems inside, inside individuals and amongst the people of God. There's a lot of ugly in people, isn't there? There's a lot of ugly in us. One pastor is preaching on this text, and, and he said that God has to get the ego sorted out in his people, that money and the pursuit of pleasure and power are self-ego motivations inside of people. And God works in us not simply to make us down on ourselves or to make us then pop back up in pride about ourselves, but rather to slow our thinking about our very selves. It, it, one pastor cited the great writer C.S. Lewis to think about this concept in terms of not thinking more or less of ourselves, but in thinking of ourselves less. Spiritual community, as it's meted out, is blessed by people that are being sanctified, not by the whimsical nature of, I'm up and I'm down, and I'm up and I'm down, not the whimsical nature of self ego, but in the ability through the Lord to think of ourselves less. If you've met uh, a saint that's been walking with the Lord for quite some time, maybe you've noticed this character trait in them, that as they're being sanctified, they have this, um, this almost uh, reflex action in their lives to just not make things about them, to just not do that. that. That is a work of the Lord, and it is an emulable trait. It's something to look at in folks that have been walking with the Lord longer than you, and to, to ask what's going on there. What's the sense of that? And Lewis's contemporary, J.R. Tolkien, picked up on a theme from this text just the same in The Lord of the Rings with eagles carrying along. Look at your text again and see how the Lord did describes poetically what he does for his people in the exodus from Egypt as boring them along or bearing them along on eagles' wings. Look at chapter 19, verse 4. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So we see God's work here in what he's already done for them. And it's very important to look back at what God's already done for you. And maybe you can think about doing that even as we consider what God had already done for them in 1446 B.C. in delivering them. There are three eyes in chapter 19, verse 4. You can probably follow along with them. It's, it's the eyes of I did, I bore, and then I brought. I did, I bore, and I brought. So how it follows in chapter 19, verse 4, is you yourself have seen what I did, what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. How I brought you to myself is implied. So before he gets to the therefore there, in verse 5, he grounds all of this in what he's done, and that's recorded in verse 4. And he talks about really Genesis-type texts in terms of what we have today. 
with regard to Jacob or the synonym for Jacob, Israel, and the people of God. The people of Israel and Jacob are described here, and what God has done for them, past tense, is being described here. So God's work is described in their journey so far, and it's described in what God has already done for them. And it's very important, I think, that we think about what God's already done for us as a framing for what we want God to do for us. It's very simple to be myopic or short-sighted or to, to have a, a forgetfulness about the past. But the past, in terms of as Christians, the past is extremely important to the present. Where were you when you first came to know Christ? When did you begin to understand the truths of these glorious doctrines of grace and his mercy he's shown for you? Do you remember when stuff got started for you? Who were some of the teachers that walked you through the scripture and very early on helped you to understand the riches of Christ's supply? It's good to look back. It's good to consider. And that's part of what verses like 19.4 do for the Egyptians and what they remind us to do for ourselves. It even says in treasure language that God's people are his, his precious possession, that he treasures us. The Hebrew word here, I'm told, describes what a rich man's inner treasures would look like. Not all his peripheral treasures, but the ones that he values most, that that rich person would have closest to them. And so the word treasure is really instructive into how God thinks about his people. It says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, in many ways, they are his treasured possession, right? Look at what he's already done for them. But he talks about, in terms of the covenant, what this looks like played out with his people. You, my treasure. I wonder if you think of yourself as a believer, as a treasure of the Lord. Just moments ago, we heard a prayer of confession where our brother outlined this pretty clearly, so I won't labor the point. But as a believer, the Lord never loves you less or more than he does right now. His affections are set on you. He has done for you a great thing in delivering you from your slavery to sin. And he carries you along even now, as he's carried you on thus far. He treasures you. This bearing you out theme is a theme that's carried out through Scripture. I bet you know where it comes from. You probably have a favorite verse in Isaiah 40, 31. Consider the context of the last verses of Isaiah 40, that prophet that points to the suffering servant, the Messiah, himself and be encouraged. It says in Isaiah 48 and following, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint, does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Are you faint today? To him who has no might, he increases strength. I wonder if you feel weak today. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young people aren't supposed to get tired, are they? And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who what? Who wait for the Lord. Sounds like a message for fellow sufferers, doesn't it? Those who wait for the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like what? Eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be encouraged how spiritual warfare is meted out with God's deliverance using this poetic imagery, not just in Isaiah, but also in Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, where 
the dragon or the crafty serpent Satan, our enemy, is declaring and has declared war on all of the offspring of Eve and particularly on the Christ child and any that would follow him. And the verses say, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And so we can be encouraged today by this poetic imagery of eagles, of being bore along. If you've ever observed eagles high, high in the air, swooping, you have a sense of the purview that they have. You have a sense of the power that they wield in the kingdom of the birds if you watch eagles. And they're beginning to be a bit more prominent in our area now. We've had a bit of a renovation of them. We're having more of them now thanks to, to wanting to have that and trying to protect them. Where I fish in Arkansas, they have the same thing on the White River where they're having more eagles and more eagles. And so one of our favorite things is to, is to drift down the river and see the eagle's nest. It's a beautiful thing to see. Allow that imagery, because God gives us this poetic imagery, allow it to encourage you. It's not just a metaphor, it's more than that. This is how God cares for his treasured possession, which is you. And it's a wonderful thing as his people. And it's foreshadowed in many ways in Exodus chapter 19. God's work is not just in what he's done for you also, but what he plans to do through you. That's the promise that he's wanting to lay out here is, I want to do stuff through you, he tells his people. He plans to make them an internationally recognized, set-apart people. He wants to make the world know about how God relates with his people through them being, quote, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. Of course, they fail big time. Colossally, they fail. They fail big in Exodus 32. Remember, they make a golden calf, and it's, it's a terrible thing. I mean, it's after the giving of the law. They don't, there's, there's not even any time given for a romance period, and all of a sudden, here they are, and they're failing big. A greater redemption than a physical exodus will be needed to heal these people. However, the apostle Peter picks up on these promises that are recorded way back in Exodus 19, and he applies them to none other than we, the church. And listen to how he does it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a what? To be a holy priesthood. Where have we heard that before? We heard it right back here, Bible students, in Exodus 19. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, not at Sinai, but at Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, for whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so we've seen in verses 1 to 6, God's work. We've seen it in the very setting, this long journey with all of its suffering. We've seen it in what God's done and what God will do. So let's turn now to verses 7 to 15 where we can see the inner realities of God's covenant relating with his people under the bold heading of man's response. Man's response. We see now man's response in the involvement of spiritual leaders, the involvement of all the people as well, and in the consecration of the garments as they're readying for a third day. So let's think about that for a moment together. Man's response in the involvement of spiritual leaders. Just glance down at your Bibles and see verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Now, I don't want to labor long here, but I do want to make a connection. Last week's sermon was 
Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, we talked about his conversion, and we talked about him as a worshiper of the one true God, Yahweh. We talked about him giving some wise counsel to Moses. Remember, Moses was sitting from morning to evening adjudicating not just the hard cases, but also the, the medium and the small cases. He was adjudicating way too many cases, and the problem was he had not yet recognized people that were recognized in the community as spiritual folks that could, in fact, adjudicate in the place of Moses. And so Moses was told to set aside people, and there are parallels with the New Testament idea of setting aside elders as well, to be sure. Not exact parallels, but there are parallels. And he was instructed by his father-in-law that he would be blessed if he would set aside people that would help him with the work. Now, most commentators will draw a line of connection between that council in chapter 19, verse 7, where these elders of the people set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them. The elders are named for a reason. In other words, there's folks over tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands, and these people, in the due time, if they're not already set over them, they will be, and they're part of getting the word of God to the people of God. And, and, and so just, just very briefly within this section of, of the text, I just, I just want to say it's really important that we pray for and labor in getting the word out to the people of God and that we live as people readied or being readied to take leadership over 5, 10, 15, 20 when the time comes, most certainly our own homes where we see that it's important that we carry the word forward to the people, that it's a dangerous thing if the people under our care and that we have influence with don't have God's word administered to them. There's a very important principle here that we have giftings in the body and we need to work out our giftings with fear and trembling and have an eye toward the teaching of the word to the people. And we see that in a microcosm here in verse 7. We see man's response in the involvement of spiritual leaders. We see man's response in the involvement of everybody, though. It's, it's not just some subset. It's not just some rank. This is everybody. Everybody's involved. Man's response in the involvement of all the people. Look in verse 8. It's a wonderful verse to just read on the face of it again. All the people, all the people, all the people. Everybody, the whole congregation, all the people answered together. And what did they say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, just hold that verse for a moment. Think about that. This sort of sounds like a vow, doesn't it? It kind of puts you in the mind of, a, of some kind of ceremony, like a wedding ceremony, where the bride and groom say, I do. Except for here, it's in the plural, we do, or we will. Um, this is an involvement response for, for all the people. And, and we know that they will break faith. We know that. We know about the golden calf. But just for a moment, let's think about the best of intentions. All the people together, like in an elaborate wedding ceremony, all gathered together like a wedding ceremony. And the Bible is, knows a lot about these wedding, wedding ceremonies with vows. You go back to Eden and God presides over the first wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve, his creation. In that garden temple sanctuary, he institutes the sacred vows of marriage in no small part. And you can read about it in Genesis 2, 24. For a man shall leave his father and mother and unite. And so we have response in marriage. We have it in Eden. Think about the rigmarole of, of the patriarchs getting wives in Genesis. I mean, that's like half of Genesis, isn't it? How are we going to get a wife for Isaac? How are we going to get a wife for, for Jacob? How are we going to get a wife, a wife, a wife? 
and I the take Rebe- I take Rebecca, and I take you know this is a whole this is there's wedding imagery and and it's not just imagery it's actions built into the Bible thus far, and we see it with Midian's daughters, don't we? Moses is in a sense exiled from Egypt, and he he saves the seven daughters of the priest of Midian, Jethro, uh, forty years ago from these events that we're reading about today, and he marries one of the daughters. He marries Zipporah, and Zipporah gives him what two sons, and we read about that as well in Exodus 19. So there's, there's a lot of wedding imagery, and now we're taking it to the, the sort of corporate level, and, and all metaphors break down, but this metaphor carries through Scripture some important tones about how God covenantally relates with His people. Think about Hosea, and maybe think about that wedding imagery there. It even harkens back to the Exodus, and think about Malachi and its deep concern for, for God's disdain for divorce and how it harms the people of God. Think about Matthew, where it records Jesus having said, what God hath joined together, let man not put asunder. Think about these hues throughout Scripture and how important they are and, and, and how they're really on display in, in Exodus 19. If you fast forward to further in the New Testament, you come to Exodus 5, where, or I'm sorry, to Ephesians 5, not Exodus, where in Ephesians 5, there's all this language about the marriage union. And it's very, very important, and we'll see at the end of our sermon today, Lord willing, how Revelation 19 sort of ties that theme together and in many ways speaks about things that are talked about in Exodus 19. So you don't have to hang on for all that right now, but I just, I just want to take a pause and kind of say here that um, when I talk about marriages, uh, it, it's, a, it's a risky, it's an occupational hazard to talk about marriage from the pulpit, you know, because, I mean, you know, we just, I mean, there's so many... Um, problems surrounding marriages and past and present tense. Um, and that we, we bear the marks, you know, Moses had to give certificates of divorce, Jesus records, because of people's hard hearts. And so, you know, if your marriage has been preserved, I hope you know that that's a sheer act of grace. I hope you don't have some legalistic tendency. I hope that dies today if you think that your marriage is preserved because of some great act you've done of faithfulness as if as if you're not a sinner, you know. Um, and I hope that if you've had a hard time on these things, I hope you'll look to the Redeemer for this present relationship and walk forward in the Lord and, and make restitution wherever it needs to be made because of the importance of the I do. It's such an important vow. It's such an important vow. It's the, the, the trappings of our Savior being born to the Virgin Mary is surrounded by betrothalment and vows and the importance of the marriage union. It's so important that we see here the importance of our vows. Um, but, but more, more flatly, and just, just right here with the text, this is an exciting moment with, where with the best of intentions, God's people Israel say, we will, we, we do, I do collectively, I do accept the terms of this covenant relationship. And um, our inability as the bride of Christ to live out what we pledge is on display every day, isn't it? I mean, with our sins, it is. And how we need to respond to God and continue looking to the Messiah for the work that He will be faithful to complete in us on the day of the Lord. That's the promise of Scripture. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of the Lord. I wonder if you live with that promise and need to be reminded of that promise from Philippians that He didn't start a work not to complete the work. Beginnings are important, though, right? I mean, we get started. That's why from the start of the sermon, I invited unbelievers to get started, to receive the gospel of Christ. But sermons are primarily for people that do believe. And so let me say to you, your beginning was important. Your I do was important. 
But finishing is essential. We have to stay the course. So look to the author and the finisher of your faith, Christ Jesus, for your sanctification as he's getting the ugly out of you as we go along. And that is clearly a hue in Exodus 19 that is understood in light of God's unfolding plan without a doubt. I mean, we see that there's a lot of ugly in us. It's on full display here. Man's response, we see in the need to consecrate garments, it says, and to be ready for the third day. Heard that before, haven't we? It's not hard to see the tones toward the cross in that third day language now, is it? On When did he rise again? He rose again on the third day. So we, we can see that, but we, I don't think we ought to make too awfully much of that. I mean, that is in Exodus a few times, uh, and it's encouraging to us as we look forward. But I think also just the garments and thinking about the putting off the old, putting on the new, our role in our growth in Christ, our sanctification, the New Testament epistles makes much of it. And in this time frame in Exodus, as we, I'm flashing back and forward and back and forward, kind of doing that here together today, in this time in Exodus, they're told, and I guess maybe we just look at it, they're told that they're supposed to do certain things with their garments. Look at, uh, at chapter 19, Exodus 19, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them, a word that means uh, to be set apart, to be holy. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments, washed garments or clean garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. I mean, think of Mount Everest or think of Pike's Peak. Think, think about God is so big and so powerful, he's going to have to come down to the highest place you could ever climb to if you didn't die before you got there. I mean, it's just amazing. You think about this language and it's absolutely accurate and true as much as it is metaphoric and humbling all at the same time. It says he's going to come down on this mountain, Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. And this is a mountain that Moses had been before. Remember the burning bush? This is, this is not his first time here. He had, this is a promise fulfillment thing. Uh, and here we are at Mount Sinai, at the sight of all the people now, not just in the sight of Moses. And he says, he says in addition to consecrating themselves, with washing their garments, he says that you should set limits for the people all around. Don't touch the mountain or the edge of the mountain, and, and you'll be put to death if you do. It's very serious here. And it says in the end of verse 13, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they'll come up to the mountain. And so Moses goes down to the people, and he, he sees to it that they're consecrated. This is not some ancillary step, that their garments are washed. And he tells them to be ready for the third day, and he offers this extra little disclaimer that commentators make a whole lot of, a whole lot of discussion about, and nobody's exactly the same on it, but do not go near a woman. Uh, I kind of think of it, this is not derogatory toward women, by the way. I, I think of this in terms of marital relations. Um, some commentators say, don't have a new wedding. Nobody's getting married these days. This is all about your relationship with God. I think if you understand the metaphor of the New Testament— of Christ the groom and the church the bride, I think you see that more full picking up of God's relationship with his people there than the types and shadows shown in the Old Testament. I think you could probably get a sense of, in, in early on, what we might be thinking about. Uh, marital relations are penultimate. Your relationship as the church with Christ is ultimate. And this is why we're not going to be given in marriage in heaven. I'm not saying you won't have a special relationship with somebody in heaven. I'm not saying you won't recognize the person. If you've had a good marriage on earth, you've been married a long time, I'm not saying that person's going to be a, a, a persona non grata type thing. Yeah, I don't mean any of that. I just mean to say heaven is not about a bunch of earthly marriages. Heaven is about marriage pointing to Christ's relationship with his people. That's what marriage is about. 
And that's, that's why you see, it's why you see so much of a pattern set with marriage. And that's what our marriages at their best are supposed to do. They're supposed to point people to Christ with the visual of a healthy union and an, and an intimate union. So he says, don't, don't make this about you right now. And probably also in terms of the law, there's probably emissions and death and all sorts of things that should not be going on right now. And so he says all this, but the big, big picture of it all, if you just sort of lift above the descriptive terms and you look kind of at the big picture, what you find here is that the people need to take seriously coming into the presence of God. And I think that's pretty helpful for us here. We need to take seriously coming into the presence of God congregationally when we come to worship. Um, when we come into our service, almost each Sunday, we take about one half of one minute of silence. Just like that. Kind of uncomfortable the first couple of times you experience it. And then you may start to kind of appreciate it. As I, I tell you, we cannot match the speed of our culture, nor do we want to. We can't match the media of our culture, nor do we want to. But you know, God, not by might, but not by power, but by his spirit, not in a phenomena, but in a still small voice to God make himself known to the ancients. And he makes himself known to us through the spoken word, and we trust that that is enough. That you would hear the word and believe the word. It is our task today. And I wonder if we need to slow down just a little. I wonder if that one half of one minute may be just a, just a, a reminder that we need about consecrating ourselves as we come to worship the one true God. The Bible says it is a terrifying thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10.31. But that very same chapter as we'll see, describes the confidence that we have because God has made access. He's met his requirements for us. But that never gets reduced for us into, into uh, sort of a flippancy, like, I'm going to go hang out with God. That, that's, that's not, no, that's not it. Like, it's, it's just not, I mean, we could, we could use examples there, but if, if your understanding of your relationship with God is sort of like, he's my buddy, you've really not read texts like Exodus 19 for all they're worth. You need to shake this thing and feel the weight of it. I mean, Exodus 19 just reminds you of the holiness of God. I'm so thankful for the late R.C. Sproul making the weight of this glory more known to us through his work on the holiness of God. If you've not read the book, I would urge you to do so because we need to be reminded of the need to consecrate ourselves before the holy and the the great, great, great gravity of the cost that was paid so that you could come into the presence of the holy, that is huge. And it needs to be, we need to be reminded of that, of man's response. We've well, seen here man's response in the involvement of spiritual leaders and by all the people, and also in consecration for readiness for what's described here as that meeting time, that third day, but also application for all of us as we're readying ourselves to meet with God when we come together in corporate worship. And so next we'll see in verses 16 to 23 the inner realities of God's covenant relating with his people under this third big bold heading of the importance of a mediator. The importance of a mediator. And so we've seen God's work 
Number one, big bold heading, we've seen man's response. Number two, big bold heading. Now we see big bold heading. Number three, the importance of a mediator. When we see the importance of a mediator in these last verses, I think we see the importance of a mediator because of the might of God. There's all this, these phenomenon, sights and sounds associated with it. We're going to refresh on that. And I think we also see that, that, that the importance of a mediator because of how we need to be warned again and again and again about the danger of sin. And we see that in this part. And we also see, I think, that the people express need for a mediator. Like when we really began to see how big God is, we see how much we need a mediator. And this mediatorial language will be where we sort of land the plane of this sermon ride today. And so that's very, very important is this, is this third of three points. So let's consider these, these relationships that we have and our relationship with God and the importance of a mediator in the phenomenal might of God. Look at how it's described. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. So it's like sounds and sights, right? Thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. It says the might of God leaves people shaking. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. I was picturing all these people, right? Million people, million and a half people, whatever it was. Foot of the mountain standing. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Often God makes himself known in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, boy, I'm tempted to want to talk about the trumpet blast, but we'll just leave that one. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. God talks to Moses in thunder. I wonder, you know, modern songs try to rip off the phenomenon of thunder. They're grasping for something that they don't give credit to. God communicates in the elements here. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of it. He calls Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. See this up, down, up, down? That's, medi- that's mediatorial language. Moses is not just getting his third of a mile calisthenics in and this up and down of his mountain. This octogenarian is not just getting his exercise, all right? That's not what this is. This is conveying something to us about the importance of a mediator. The phenomenon is, is conveying the, the, the grandeur of God, of an omniscient and omnipresent God, of an all-powerful God, and, and the need for, for a go-between, for somebody to stand between us to, to help us be able to get to God. And, and it points to God's largeness, and, and it's enough to make any believer wither, isn't it? I mean, just shake and quake and wither. And if you really, if you read through the Bible, you see that again and again. I mean, when someone, the closer someone gets to God, the, the more they, they feel their smallness. They're, they elucidate that with different words, but we, we see that. Get away from, remember Peter, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. I mean, we could go, there's all sorts of examples we could give. That's, a, that's how you know, when people talk about meeting with God in some flippant way, they haven't met with God. You don't meet with God in some flippant way. That's, that's, not, that's not the gospel. It's not the Bible. That's not the storyline of the Bible. Nobody meets with God in some flippant way. It's important. It's gravity. Access is there. I mean, we're going to end there today, but it's gravity. God, God is substantive. He traffics in big ideas. 
The only way you confidence comes in coming to God is through a mediator. The importance of a mediator is articulated in the repetition of warning. See, they, they'd already been warned not to do this thing, but they're being warned again. And, and you think, well, didn't they get it the first time? Well, do we ever get it the first time? I mean, we need our under-shepherds to remind us again and again of some of the same types of infractions against God. We again and again need to be consecrated. We need to be disciplined in the pursuit of holiness. It's a cheerful grace to pursue holiness. Access is a privilege. We don't presume upon the grace of God. We cherish it. Remember Nadab and Abihu? Evidently, they're present for some of these meetings with God that we see from chapter 20 to 31. Remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? You can read about it in Leviticus 10. They do something strange with worship. They knew better. I mean, they've been around for all this phenomenon, all this mighty God. You know what God did to them? He struck them dead. As an everlasting warning for anybody that reads the Pentateuch, God is not to be trifled with. And listen to me, children. You can know the Lord just the same as me and everybody aged above and beyond and above and below me. But you never come to know Lord until you understand He's big, really, really big, and that He wants to set His affections on you as His treasured possession, and that the only way that you come to the Lord is through His mediator. And it's not Moses. Moses is a sort of type of a mediator. He's a pretty good leader. He mediates for the people on that mountain. And we love Moses. We don't have the first five books of the Bible except through the instrumentation of the Spirit working through Moses to give it to us. But the true and better mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am not just going for a Jesus Sunday School juke there. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. I mean, all over the New Testament, but especially in the book of Hebrews, that our, our better mediator, our true and better mediator, the important mediator, the, the, the mediator that people need so much, that the people are expressing need toward in Exodus, is Christ. Look at, at Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. Jump back there. It says that the people may believe you forever. Actually, that verse says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now, what is that about? I mean, of course, the words of Scripture, these first five books of the Bible, we need to believe them forever. The Word of God's not passing away. I think there's something there. But what this is really about is God instilling confidence in the people in Moses as their mediator. And that whole thing falls apart later, doesn't it? I mean, they sin, and Moses sins, and Moses doesn't go in the promised land, and Moses writes in Deuteronomy that there's going to be a prophet like him come, a true and better prophet. Now, we, we, we already know that Christ is a true and better priest. He's a true and better mediator. And this is, this is pointing to something else. But if confidence in Moses for the Israelites was important, how much more so is confidence in Christ our mediator for us as the church. I mean, I wonder if you approach the throne of grace on confidence of how you've lived this last week or this last month or this last life. I wonder if your approach to the throne of grace is sort of as your own mediator or mediator-less. I mean, Christ is your mediator. He's there. He's always there for you, and he's the better mediator. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8 
verses 4 to 6, describing our high priest Christ as also our mediator. The text says, Now if, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But Hebrews says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, and listen to this, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. How is the promise better? Well, we couldn't fulfill the terms of the Mosaic covenant. We couldn't fulfill the law at Sinai, but Christ, he can. Perfect. We need a mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 1-6, the Apostle Paul specifically addresses us about this in relation to our worship together. And it says in 1 Timothy 2, 1-6, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions where we get the idea of praying for our governing authorities. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Timothy 2, 3 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This connection between our corporate prayers and missions, I think, there. But then verse 5 really says it all. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This mediator Christ in the new covenant grants us unprecedented access Hebrews says it extremely well in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then what? Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. O baptized people, follow the Lord. Pray with confidence. Look at Christ. Look to Christ. Verse 23 of Hebrews 10 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Stay with it. For he who promised is faithful. It's not our faithfulness, it's his faithfulness. And, he, and let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. And how do we do that? by not neglecting gathering together for corporate worship, where we pray like 1 Timothy 2 instructed us to pray, by not neglecting meeting together here, not virtually, but together as often as possible. Some had developed the habit of not meeting together, but in this text it says that's how we encourage one another in our faith to bring faith to completion on the day of the Lord through the work of Christ as we see the day drawing near. What a gift. And so, as we jump back and consider in conclusion what we're looking at in Exodus 19. We see a, a one-of-a-kind event in Moses' day where, where God the divine ruler explains covenant relationship realities to Israel. And we learn, as we've seen today, some things about how God seeks to relate with people, something of inner realities. And we saw it under three bold headings. We saw it about God's work. We saw it about man's response. And we also saw it in the need for a mediator. And we've seen finally that the true and better mediator is Christ Jesus himself. 
And I think that's why the storyline that I talked about from the start of the sermon is so important. Creation, fall, redemption, fulfillment. God made us. We rejected Him in the garden through our first parent, Adam. That's the fall. Redemption came through a true and better Adam. We read about it today in the service in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And so through the true and better Adam, we have redemption, and we have that fulfillment, that just as sure as Moses' fulfillment from Mount Sinai's burning bush to Mount Sinai's giving the law was true, every promise of God finds its fulfillment. It's yes in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. And so that fulfillment is just as assured for us in the day of the Lord. When you die, you meet Christ just the same as a believer. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. It's just as assured for you as the burning bush was to Moses. It's a sure thing. And so you can have confidence when you approach the throne of grace as you consider the storyline of the Bible because you have been led to respond to the Lord and to receive His wonderful redemption. This mediator Christ will advocate for you on Judgment Day. He intervenes for you right now and secures your final holiness. You can have this confidence that you have this access in prayer to God because of the finished work of Christ and not of your own. Exodus 19 is like a like a wedding ceremony I do. That really points to a different 19th chapter in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, where the wedding ceremony gives way to a reception of love in Christ. The fuller picture of heaven with all the same phenomena as Sinai in Revelation 19 shows us that God's relation with His people will culminate in a greater wedding ceremony than you've ever seen and a reception beyond anything you could ever imagine when we, His people, His bride, encounter Christ as our groom in heaven. Listen to these verses in Revelation 19. The last verses we read, besides the benediction. And think about it in terms of all we've spoken of today from the text. And may Jesus be lifted high and draw all men unto himself because of it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What garments they are. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. John, the apostle, fell at the feet to worship the angel in all of his confusion because of the bigness of the message, and the bigness of the, the God that gave the message. And he says, you can't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. That's what the angels are. You and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. And there's two little words there that matter so much to us. Worship God. Worship God. Worship God. Response, worship God for the testimony of Jesus, the Spirit, prophecy. Sincere believers, you've been invited. It's yours to pursue readiness for that special day, and you're blessed, and this is the worship of God. Let's take a half a minute of silence now to consider our personal responses to God as we've heard the word preached corporately. <laughs> 